Every parent knows that feeling, that desire to soothe a child's pain, to really make the crying stop. For more than 60 years, parents have reached to the medicine cabinet for a bottle of acetaminophen, marketed under the brand name Tylenol. Millions of kids with bumps and bruises have gotten pain relief or seen fevers go down. And adults, of course, use it too. We put this in our bodies mostly without even thinking about it. Yet most people have no idea how the pill actually works. Is it an anti-inflammatory? Does it block some known receptor on cells that sends pain signals to the brain? I know I'm not stopping to think about all that in the middle of a migraine. Yeah, me neither. But it's actually important. We don't want drugs to be just shots in the dark. We want drug makers to be able to predict side effects, to predict how one drug interacts with another, to know where a drug might be most useful or harmful. It's no surprise that most people don't know exactly how acetaminophen works. What actually is surprising? After 60 years, deep down at the level of biochemistry and molecular biology, scientists still don't know. I'm Luke Timmerman. And I'm Meg Terrell, and you're listening to Signal. Today, we talk about how so many of the drugs we count on every day have mysterious and unpredictable ways of working. What's so complex about Tylenol and so many other drugs? It takes scientists years of painstaking experiments, first in the Petri dish, then in animals, then in human clinical trials to really suss out the mechanism of action of an experimental drug. So let's just stop there and repeat that phrase, because you're going to want to get familiar with it if you aren't already. Yep. Say it with us. Mechanism Mechanism of of action. action. Mechanism of action. action. (laughs) Maybe we should try that again. (laughs) (laughs) So what it means simply is how a drug interacts with a living system once it's inside. And that's where things get mysterious. So researchers and companies often design their drugs to do something very specific, like stop a certain enzyme that's wreaking havoc. Drugs have a very specific mechanism of action. Yeah, you don't want some medication going around the body indiscriminately binding with random targets. You could accidentally turn off some processes you need to stay alive, right? But like we said, the body is a complex place. Right. So the drugs are intended to work one way, but then they enter this highly uncertain and shifting terrain in the human body. And the fact is, despite our best efforts, we don't really know how drugs are going to interact in the body until we give them to lots of people. And people, by their nature, are quite different. All kinds of factors, from our age to our gender to our genes to the type of microbes we coexist with. See Signal Podcast Episode 1. <laughs> right. All of that can influence how we might respond to a drug, or might not. The more you know about biology, the more humbling it gets. It's kind of amazing that we're able to effectively discover and develop new drugs with a rational scientific basis at all. The sheer unpredictability of biology is a big reason why so many experimental drugs fail. 
Sometimes, even after a drug appears to achieve its desired benefit, scientists still struggle to adequately explain how that happens. I'm not sure where the saying comes from, but I've, I've seen it that, um, you know, humans appreciate complexity but strive for simplicity. And I, I think that the drug development process is, a, is us striving for simplicity in what is intrinsically an incredibly complex biology. Here's Doug Williams. He's the former head of R&D at Biogen and now the CEO of Kodiak Biosciences, a biotech startup in Boston. You know, the human body is a, uh, is an incredible machine and, you know, we understand parts of it, but not all of it. And, you know, occasionally as we develop drugs and bring them forward, you know, we learn things in an unexpected way. Despite all the advances of genomics and new tools of molecular biology, there's still a huge amount of luck at work in drug discovery. Here's Brian Scorney, a biotech and pharmaceuticals analyst with Robert W. Baird. Historically, really how pharmaceuticals evolved was relying, you know, to a certain extent on serendipity, you know, whether it be the story of the discovery of penicillin and how it inhibited bacterial growth. The idea that we could move past serendipity is a relatively new one. The past 40 to 50 years of biotech and pharmaceuticals has been a quest to better understand the underlying molecular biology of human beings so that we don't have to rely so much on luck. If you know the precise chemical structure of an enzyme you'd like to inhibit, then you can design a drug to bind precisely with that structure and not other structures on healthy cells that you'd like to leave alone. One analogy you sometimes hear is the idea of making a key to fit into a lock. Sometimes this works triumphantly. Novartis's imatinib, which is marketed as Gleevec, is one example. It's made to specifically inhibit an enzyme that's overactive in chronic myeloid leukemia. The drug has been a godsend for patients. Before that targeted drug came along, about 35% of patients could expect to live five years. And today, that figure is above 95%. But for every example like that, there are many more drugs where the mechanism of action surprised scientists and led them down new directions. Viagra is a famous story. I'm in the mood for love Just because you smile Right. Everybody knows what clinical effect that drug has, but not everyone knows how its most popular use came about. The drug actually performs its task quite well. The compound, sildenafil, is specifically designed to inhibit an enzyme called PDE5. Scientists at Pfizer theorized that the action would widen blood vessels, so it's what they call a vasodilator. Pfizer thought the drug might be useful for congestive heart failure. John LaMatina, a former president of R&D at Pfizer, was at the company when the drug was coming through the lab in the 1990s. In fact, we almost didn't take it into people because it didn't work very well in our animal models, but it was a safe molecule. It looked a, was a good inhibitor of, of the PD-5 enzyme. But when the drug was tested in young male volunteers, something strange happened. When they went in, they found a lot of the men were lying on their stomachs. And a very observant nurse uh, reported this, uh, saying that uh, the men were embarrassed, they were getting erections. And if she doesn't make that observation, 
Uh, who knows if the PD5s are ever discovered for, uh, for use in erectile dysfunction and, and uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension as well. The rest, as they say, is history. So the scientists were right. Inhibiting the PDE5 enzyme was a way to relax or widen blood vessels, improving circulation. The compound was working as a vasodilator. It just wasn't working for the part of the body they originally imagined it would. Predict one mechanism of action and you end up getting another. That reality continues to drive new ideas, new experiments. The same basic compound is now FDA approved for another use. It's prescribed for patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is a dangerous narrowing of the blood vessels that supply the lungs. And who knows what other uses Viagra might have? Good question. I know of some mountain climbers who use it up at high altitude, figuring they need all the blood flow they can get in thin air. You might think that could be kind of distracting, though. Oh, anyway. Okay. Many other times, scientists have an idea about how a drug is supposed to function based on lab work, and they find out years later they were totally wrong. That's the story of the statins. These cholesterol-lowering drugs are taken by millions of people. Maybe you've even taken one yourself. They've been so good for so long, their patents have expired, and they are all now available in cheap generic forms. Scientists at Merck, working on an early statin molecule, thought it would work by blocking your body from making cholesterol. They thought inhibiting a certain enzyme would do it, and early results look good. Here's John LaMatina again, the former Pfizer R&D executive, on what came next. Dr. Uh, Michael Brown and Joseph Goldstein at the University of Texas Southwest Medical Center decided to investigate these compounds and how they're working. And they found that, in fact, what occurs is, yes, it is blocking the enzyme, but when it blocks the enzyme in the liver, the liver senses a need for more cholesterol. And so it will generate more LDL receptors. LDL is the lipoprotein that carries cholesterol around the body. That, in turn, resulted in in the removal of LDL from, from the bloodstream and just dramatically giving far lower LDL uh, cholesterol levels uh, in the blood and lower LDL levels. So the way the drug actually worked was quite different from what they thought. It changed the behavior of the liver, allowing it to remove more cholesterol instead of blocking the production of cholesterol in the first place. Now, some people might still be saying, who cares how it works as long as it gives you the result you want? Isn't this all just an academic exercise? No, not really. Knowledge of a drug's true modus operandi is crucially important. It means better drugs, and it means new drugs for all of us. And one great example here is the cancer drug rituximab, marketed as rituxin. Rituxin is one of the pioneering targeted antibody drugs for cancer. It's a great drug and remains one of the best-selling pharmaceuticals in the world and it paved the way for another important drug. We talked about the idea of the lock and key. Scientists designed this antibody to specifically bind with a target called CD20 on the surface of B cells in the immune system. With certain diseases, like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, B cells start proliferating out of control. Scientists thought if you could specifically deplete the B cells with the CD20 marker, then you could effectively attack those diseases. And they were right. But even after this drug was on the market for many years, 
earning billions of dollars and was taken by thousands more patients than ever saw it in clinical trials, scientists still remain curious, even a bit mystified, as to how it was actually working. One University of Iowa researcher, writing in an obscure scientific journal 13 years after rituxan was approved, wrote that the drug's mechanism of action still wasn't fully understood. That's because the anti-CD20 effect was only part of the story. Scientists now see the drug doing several different things at once. One is called complement-dependent cytotoxicity, and another is called antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. That's a fancy way of saying rituxan binds to the surface of CD20-bearing cells and creates an odd-looking structure that mobilizes the immune system to mount an attack. Seeing the two or three different ways that rituxan was working gave scientists at Genentech, the company that developed the original antibody, some ideas on how to improve it. In 2005, the company acquired a little antibody engineering company in Switzerland that had expertise in tweaking the carbohydrate structures that hang off the backbone of the Y-shaped protein that's at the core of rituxan. <laughs> the way you said that, I feel like we should be like, the neck bone's connected to the backbone. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. Changing the structure of the antibody in this very specific way might help rev up the immune system even more. That would make CD20-bearing cells even more visible to the immune system. So they were making the target on each cell's back even bigger, so to speak. Years later, Genentech won FDA clearance for a next-generation antibody aimed at the CD20 marker, called ubinutuzumab, now marketed as Gaziva. The newly engineered drug did even better than the original in a head-to-head -head study of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The new antibody with the different structure also means that Genentech will be able to extend the patent life on its anti-CD20 franchise too. But that's a topic for a future episode. A lot to plumb there. <laughs> So knowledge of a drug's mechanism of action can be very valuable. It can help inform drug companies on what paths to go down in clinical trials and give them some more predictability in an inherently unpredictable business. That much is clear. But at this point, ambiguous cases are far more common. You and I have both covered FDA advisory committee meetings and have seen how much the FDA wants to know about a drug's mechanism of action before clearing it for sale. It makes regulators and doctors very uncomfortable when they see a drug achieve a desired effect, but through unknown means. It makes everyone wonder if we're taking some giant leap of faith and going to regret it later because we'll see some horrific side effect emerge later once a drug goes into many people. Right, and we've all heard many stories about dangerous side effects only becoming apparent after drugs hit the market and people get harmed. Thalidomide, Vioxx, Fenfen are a few of the famous examples. Thalidomide was shown to cause horrific birth defects when taken by pregnant women. And Vioxx, a pain reliever, was found to raise the risk of heart attack and stroke and was pulled off the U.S. market. Fenfen was the combination of weight loss drugs that damaged heart valves, which again led to it being pulled off the market. Those are the negative surprises that keep drug company executives up at night. Sometimes drug companies get lucky in the right direction, like with Viagra. Sometimes they get lucky at first, and then over time, they start looking a little less lucky. <laughs> Your use of the phrase get lucky takes on a whole new meaning when you're talking about it in conjunction with Viagra. Oh, I hadn't uh, thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Good drugs sometimes develop warts over time, so to speak. 
Doug Williams knows more than a couple stories. At Immunex, he was part of the team that developed Etanercept, or Enbrel, for rheumatoid arthritis. That drug works by binding with an inflammatory protein called TNF. By soaking up excess TNF, it works against a handful of autoimmune diseases. When Enbrel was first approved in 1998 by the FDA, it had what Williams called a pristine safety label. But all along, researchers and regulators knew that tamping down this part of the immune defense can make some patients more vulnerable to certain types of infections. Sure enough, over time, they saw some worrisome cases, and warnings are now displayed prominently on the drug's prescribing label. Some of the safety warnings can be anticipated, but others, not so much. People need to understand that when a drug goes through the ringer of FDA scrutiny, a lot can be determined about a drug's mechanism of action, its effects, and its side effects. But not everything. Really, our knowledge of what drugs do inside our bodies is constantly accumulating and evolving over time. Brian Scorney, the Baird analyst we heard from at the top of the show, said he's continually amazed by how some successful drugs continue to elude our understanding of how they work. 30 years ago, we had very little understanding on the biology of a lot of diseases. Cancer probably being the best example. It's a very complex biological disease. There, you know, it's not really one disease, but can be you know, essentially thousands and thousands of different diseases that have been put under one umbrella. And, and even within individual types of tumors, different mutations can be the driving factors. So I think you have simultaneous leaps forward in molecular biology and medicinal chemistry kind of running parallel courses. We talked a couple of episodes back about the amazing, nefarious things that tumors do to evade what modern medicine has to throw at them. Now, Meg, I know you were recently at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting in Chicago. Yeah, that's a conference where a lot of major clinical trial results get reported by researchers and drug companies. People talk a lot in these sessions, of course, about a drug's mechanism of action. And I know people are talking a lot now about combining immunotherapies with different ways of working now, specifically some that, quote, release the breaks on the immune system in tandem with other molecules that you can say press on the accelerator of an ongoing immune response against tumors. And I would say right now we're talking about drugs that most people, fingers crossed, knock on wood, won't have to take. I mean, these are cancer drugs. It's for obviously very severe situations. But let's go back to Tylenol. We don't know exactly what that's doing in our bodies. And and that's why as a drug industry reporter, I actually take a lot fewer pharmaceuticals than I think most of my peers do. Because for Tylenol or for any kind of painkillers, over-the-counter medicines, I'm very careful about how I take them. I read the instructions and I make sure I don't take more than the instructions say. Because we don't know exactly what they're doing and they can have really severe side effects. Just because they're given over-the-counter doesn't mean they're perfectly safe. We still, in many respects, think of medicine as a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, because that's how prescribing labels tend to be written. Tylenol will say, well, take one every six hours, not to exceed you know, five per 24 hours, or something like that. And it's assuming that, well, we're, we're writing this for the average uh, adult who's about 5'8 and 160 pounds. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that's the best you can do in, in sort of that, that one-size-fits-all framework. But people are different. Some people metabolize drugs much faster or much slower 
than other people. It is something to be mindful of, even when you're taking some ibuprofen over-the-counter. So we're talking right now about over-the-counter medicines. You know, they haven't been approved by the FDA. That's crazy, actually, when you think about, like, Tylenol. It hasn't been approved by the FDA, but it has, like, a huge therapeutic effect. Well, there are a lot of old drugs that are grandfathered in, right? And some of them are, they're they're old, they're generic, they're over-the-counter, and there's no manufacturer with a big financial incentive to run the fully multi-million dollar rigorous clinical trial to, like, nail the mechanism of action and and prove its clinical usefulness. I mean, those kind of studies just will not be done on aspirin or Tylenol ever. However, there are a lot of studies that are done on drugs like aspirin or, you know, just to to figure out what the safety effects are, because obviously so many people have taken these things. So we always see these headlines coming out about stroke risk, things like that. So our our understanding is evolving and and safety studies are, are obviously ongoing. We tend to assume anything that gets approved by the FDA is inherently safe. And that's just not true. When you get your prescription at the pharmacy, there is a long paper associated with it. If you open it up, you can read all about the drug's safety risks, often its mechanism of action if it's understood. And we need to know that drugs aren't 100% safe just because they've been approved by the FDA. That is a weighing of the efficacy versus the safety risks of a drug. It's a dangerous misconception. When a drug is FDA approved, it means that the drug has demonstrated that the benefit outweighs the risk based on the best available evidence at the time. But as we said, uh, the, the evidence evolves over time. Once more and more people take a drug, we gain a, a greater understanding of that risk-benefit balance. And sometimes we, we find out that the risk is greater. The FDA would, would be the first to tell you that people shouldn't just assume that because something's FDA approved that it's it's as safe as eating a box of Cheerios. That's right. And I think it's something that, you know, when when people are especially in sort of desperate situations want to try experimental drugs. And that makes sense. And and often in a desperate situation you are willing to try something riskier than you obviously would be otherwise. But that doesn't come without risks and In clinical trials, we can only learn so much. I mean, sometimes these signals are so faint that it's not until a drug gets out into the population in a much broader way that we see any of these safety issues. And it happens with a lot of drugs. I mean, we could sit here listing them all night. One thing that really is true, though, is the new tools that scientists have, all kinds of tissue staining and DNA sequencing and imaging, All these things are getting sharper, more precise, more granular, and that is helping us get a better feel for how the drug is working, what that mechanism of action is. We still have a long way to go. You know, a lot of the models that we use today in the lab are inherently flawed. You know, a cell in a petri dish isn't exactly the same as a cell in a live human being. So, you know, what we're doing, that's about building that body of evidence and gaining more and more confidence, just getting a little bit more predictability about what that molecule is going to do once it goes into its first person in a clinical trial. 
The, the new knowledge of biology is certainly thrilling. We're not just groping in the dark like we used to be. At the same time, for everything we do know, it's still the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot there under the surface we can't yet see. Thanks for tuning into Signal. We are a production of STAT, a national news publication reporting from the frontiers of health and medicine. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. Signal's senior editor is Jeff Delvisio. And we want to hear from you. Email us at signal at statnews.com or tweet us using the hashtag SignalPod. Next episode, we take on the mother of one-size-fits-all drug problems, and it may be the biggest arms race of our time. Antibiotics and a battle with the bugs. Superbugs, that is. Why many experts warn we're heading toward a post-antibiotics era. How we got here and what we can do. Next time on Signal. Correction. This episode first referred to acetaminophen as being originally derived from willow tree bark. It was actually synthesized in laboratories, and we regret the error. I should say that I mixed up acetaminophen with aspirin at some point during the show revisions, and I'm guessing that's probably not the first time that error has happened.